So we are in Advent. This is the first Sunday in Advent, and you see we've lit the, in, the, the Advent candle, and every week you'll see new uh, versions of this, and uh, Georgian read for us this morning. And we're walking through these different poems. You know, when Jesus came to earth, when I walked in here this morning, I was here Friday when we set up for this, uh, but walking in here this morning and the lights are lit a little bit and there's this kind of feel, right? It's like the church glows during this season. It's a whole different season of the year and it has always inspired people to these kind of different levels of faith and different levels of feeling and expression. And one of the things you see in the scriptures is that people, when Jesus came, they were moved to song or to poetry. How many of you just write poetry in your spare time? You know, you have a secret blog out there and you're just writing out your feelings and you want us all to hear that and so you want to shout out where your poetry can be found, right? Nobody does that, right? But yet when you feel something very strongly in the history of the world, sometimes people do that. And so we're walking through this Advent season, walking through the songs, and the first one is going to be a guy named Zachariah who wrote a poem about his son. And we're going to read that in a moment. You're going to hear a a poem that Mary wrote. You're going to hear a poem that the angels sang. You're going to hear all of these different poems. And every week will be a a different song. And they're they're really, really neat. But they kind of glow. More than just lights that just light something up, they actually kind of poetically shine the light in a very different way. And so each week you're going to hear a different version of those. I'm going to read uh, Luke 1, 68 through 79. And that's the first of these Advent songs that we're going to go through, and you can read along with me on the screen. It says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace." to guide our feet into the path of peace. Uh, When we talk about faith, I heard a story a while back, and you may have heard it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. And if you haven't heard it, you'll enjoy it. You know, there's this story of a pastor, and his family begged him, and I I know what this feels like, for a pet. And they just incessantly wanted this pet. And finally, after a long time of them bugging him, he decides, I'm going to give in. And he went, and he found one of those places alongside the road. You find them, especially on Route 23 in Pennsylvania. I find there's all these signs as you go out to Lancaster County, free kittens. And he picked up one of those kittens, and he brought it home. And that kitten took one look at his three kids, and it went, oh, my goodness. I'm not okay with kids, you know, and pets do this all the time. And it ran out to the front yard and it climbed up a tree. And this tree was too thin for anybody to climb up after the cat. And it was too tall for anybody to reach up and get the cat out. And it sat there for several hours. Family all gathered around the tree and we're going, what we, we had a cat, you know, but the cat's now up there and we're not able to play with our cat. And the kids are crying and, you know, so the pastor gets a great idea, as pastors do. And he throws a rope over one of the uppermost limbs, okay? He tosses that rope over the top, and he pulls it down. And then he ties both ends of the rope to the bumper of his car. And he gets in the driver's seat, and he hits the gas slowly, puts it in first gear, and he kind of creeps forward, and that tree moves from vertical to horizontal progressively, right? You're seeing, and the cat is coming 
down closer and closer and closer and closer. And it's just almost within the distance where you could reach up and grab it when the rope slides off the end of that tree. And what God designed to be a tree turned into a catapult. And that cat went flying through the air who knows where. For the next two to three days, the pastor spends and his family, they spend the time looking around the neighborhood wondering where that cat, you know, cats land on their feet, right? So they figured it's got to be somewhere around here, and they cannot find it. And finally, after a few days, they decide, you know what, we're done. We're not going to find this cat. It's over. I just hope it found some place that's going to be a welcoming environment for it. Well, a couple weeks go by, and the pastor drops off after work, and he goes to the grocery store to pick something up for his family. And he's in the checkout line, and here's one of the ladies from his church in front of him. And he knows this lady happens to dislike cats intensely. And there she is paying for a bag of cat food. And he says, ma'am, I don't know what to say. I mean, you've always been a cat hater. And here you are buying cat food. I can only surmise that you have a kitten or a cat. And she says, yes, and you won't believe it, Pastor. I've got to tell you this story. It's a story of faith. It's a story of prayer. It's a story where God moved. And she says, I hate cats. And my daughter, who's in elementary school, she has been bothering me for weeks to get her a kitten. And I say, no, I'm not getting you a kitten. No matter what you say, no, no, no. Week after week, this argument goes on. She said, finally, I said, you need to just go pray about this because I'm not getting you a kitten. And she said, so help me, Pastor. I sat there doing the dishes, and I looked out the window into my backyard, and my daughter went out back, and she got in her little dress. She got down on her knees, and she looked at heaven with those big eyes that only elementary-age little girls have. And she looked at heaven, and I don't know what came out of her mouth, but I could see her lips moving, and whatever it was, it must have been profound because this cat came flying out of the heavens and landed right in her lap. And she said, I have to just agree with God that he wanted us to have a cat. And the pastor just shook his head and said, absolutely. Faith does wonderful things, right? Well, when we talk about faith, faith is a little more complicated than that. We love that story, right? I have no idea, by the way, if it's true. Somebody asked me after the first service. This is one of those things you read. Who knows? Who knows? But you can imagine it happening. And I can imagine thinking it's a good idea to pull a cat down from a tree that way. That would happen to Josh Boyer. That could happen. But, you know, faith is a little more complicated. And after years of prayer, many of us have asked God for things, and we've had to admit to ourselves that God doesn't just do what we want him to when we want him to. And we think we believe, and we think God has intervened in our life. We've seen him visit us in years past, but we sometimes find ourselves a little bit tired out. We find ourselves a little burdened by the fact that we want to see God move, and we know we need God to move, and yet somehow in our lives, in certain ways, maybe specifically things that are close to our heart, we have a hard time finding him moving. He seems to kind of go missing. You know, the story of the Bible is the story of God intervening, visiting people, speaking into their lives, making change. And yet there's a whole host of times when God doesn't do that. And maybe most of us live in those times more than we live in the opposite. Maybe most of us live in the times where we're looking for God to act and we don't. We feel like that little girl in the backyard and we're praying at heaven, but we've been there all day and all week and all month and we're not seeing change. It might be that we're talking about some child that we're very concerned about or some health concern. It might be some medical issue. It might be some family concern that that goes on with our wider family, some disunity in the holiday season. I don't know what it is for you, but everybody has their list, and we're going, God, please move. Maybe it's things you don't even know you need, but God wants to move, and yet you haven't seen him move, and there's corresponding symptoms of, of hurt and pain in your life, something that just kind of aches. You struggle with depression or whatever it might be. 
You know, the story of the Bible is a story very, very similar to that. You know, the story of the Bible is the story of people who start to do what God called them to do, and they reach out and they're told these great promises, and they're, they, they walk into them, but then they don't automatically just turn out, right? There's this guy named Abraham, and you've heard of him before, and he is told that if he goes to the place where God tells him to go, he's going to become this great nation, and all of the world's countries are going to be blessed through this one nation that's going to come from him. But there's a problem with that. He, his wife can't have children. And for decade after decade after decade, they think they're going to have a baby, or at least maybe one, but hopefully more, right? They were promised a great nation, and no babies come. And after decades, they they finally kind of give up. They move on, and they decide maybe God wants us to take action in other ways, and they kind of go after things a different way. And then God visits them, and he actually says, by this time next year, you'll have a child. And in fact, they do. God visits after all of that time. It takes decades for him to move, but he comes through, and he does create a nation out of that, out of that person, out of that man, Abraham and his wife Sarah. If you fast forward a few hundred years, you come to this guy named David who's the greatest king in Israel's history. In 2 Samuel 7, it tells, him, tells us that God promised him some specific things. It says, David, I'm going to make your line, this, this people that come from you, they're going to be the great kings of Israel, and they're never, going to, they're never going to run out. There's always going to be a king. There's always going to be someone who comes from the line of David, and it's this great promise. And David is immediately like, yeah, that, what a blessing to know that his descendants are going to be part of the plan of God. In fact, Abraham's blessing, to be a blessing to all of the nations, is now going to work through David's line, and they're going to be the leaders, the stewards of that blessing but it doesn't all work out. David's son Solomon isn't such a great king, and his son Rehoboam is a much, much less good king. And as it continues to progress, it goes up and down. But eventually, over 300 years' time, this whole story breaks apart, and the kings of Israel turn out to be really, really bad guys. And eventually, believe it or not, God gives them over to this whole other country, and there are no kings in Israel. That happens about 600 years before Jesus is born. And from that point on, there are no kings all the way into the first century. What do you think the people of Jerusalem were thinking when Jesus came to earth? God had promised them a king and they had no king. And for six centuries, there was no king. They started to come up with stories, stories that, well, maybe this is the wrong interpretation of the Bible. We're reading this, but maybe God meant something different by it. We're praying and we're asking God to move, but we don't see him stepping in and we're still under these foreigners who oppress us and we're, we just don't feel like maybe God's as interested in us as he once was. We've, we've lost the thread of what God's doing. And faith, which was based on something they heard God say and that they'd been waiting to watch the fruition of and that they'd expectantly hoped for and that they were looking forward to see God visit and do something about, it was starting to die. And enter into that story, the big story. That's the big story of what's happening at the time when Jesus was born. There is this, there is this priest. And he, he's, he's called upon, he draws the short straw, and he, he's called upon to work in the temple. And he goes into the temple, and after years of not having a child, he and his wife are later in their years, just like Abraham in the Old Testament. And he's in there, and he has watched year after year as his wife has just crumbled with the pain of not giving birth to a child, not having anybody to follow up with their line. And yet this angel comes and talks to him in the temple. And his name's Zacharias, and Zacharias meets this angel, and the angel says, you know what, nine months from now, you're going to have a baby, and that baby is going to become the greatest prophet of his era, and he's going to become this, this amazing man who predicts the Messiah, the, the Son of God coming to earth, and he's going to do all of these things. 
And Zechariah pictures in the back of his mind this woman who he's left at home that day when he went to work, and he pictures her and all of the grief that she's had, and he says, I don't believe you. Even though you're an angel, there's no way. My faith just can't buy it. I can't get there. My belief is not enough. And the angel says, well, I'll let you know. Here's the signal for the fact that what I'm telling you is true, and that's that you're not going to talk again. For the next nine months, you're not going to talk until that baby's born. And then you're going to name him John. And when you do, you're going to all of a sudden be able to talk again. And you know what? It happens. Zechariah's faith, which is so weak and is really just given out at this point, he's no longer trusting in the great promises of God. He's just kind of lost his way in life. He, he watches for the next nine months, and eventually he's literally sitting there holding a little baby John in his hands, and he says his name is John. And then what comes out of his mouth are the words that I just read for you. He wrote this poem at that moment when all of a sudden his life's, his life's pain was turned to absolute joy when his grief was turned into dancing. Let me read it again for you, because I think it will come to a a greater meaning if you can see it from that standpoint. It says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. God has intervened. And what's more is maybe this is the beginning of an intervention that hasn't happened in 600 years of time. God has been silent for the better part of a millennium, and he's about to do something that no one's ever seen him do. He has raised up a horn of salvation. That's code language for king from the Old Testament. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. This line that we thought was dying is now actually giving birth to a king that is going to change the world's history. He'll bring salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun, the old King James Version used the word dayspring here, the rising of Jesus into the world, the sun coming into the darkness and the light birthing into what has been so much gloom by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. The story of what God's been doing The story of what God's been doing has been absolutely one of those things that nobody could keep up with. Not because it's moved so fast, but because it's moved so slow. And God has consistently, for the better part of a millennium, been thinking that he was called to this this job of absolutely blessing people, but everybody had forgotten that God actually was going to do it. And people had given up. People had moved on. People had walked away. And David the king had given way to all of these different kings who die out. And then finally God is about to birth one great king from that line. And nobody sees it coming because everybody's kind of lost track of the line. And all of a sudden in the middle of this, a Messiah is born. And John the Baptist is there, the son of this guy named Zechariah. And and Zechariah holds him in his arms and he gives what the old Roman Catholic Church called the Benedictus. It means the blessing. And he blessed this little boy and he says, you know what? Not only has God answered my cry, not only has God answered my prayer, but he has answered the cry of our whole nation. And he's about to birth hope where there has been so much gloom and darkness, the light has dawned. This prayer, this prayer of grief and heartache has turned into something that God is turning around in the moment. You know, the the Old Testament, if you're one of those people who's asked God for some things, and I mean, honestly, how many of you have asked God for something you haven't received? 
Everybody's hands should be up. I mean, honestly, you, you don't have a big enough prayer list if you haven't asked God for some things that haven't turned out. Anybody ask God for something you're glad you didn't get? I have a few, I have a few of them. I don't want to tell you. I mean, some of them are pretty embarrassing, right? But we all of us have these things that we've asked God for. But you know, the thought that God needs to break into our world and that he wants to and that we're supposed to pray that way, it's not something that's new. The Old Testament people do this all the time. I want to read to you. This is the message, which is a kind of a contemporary reading. This is the prophet Isaiah, and he's not prophesying here. He's actually praying back to God. Now listen to what he says. If you've had had one of those moments where you've cried out to God and asked for help, listen to what the prophet Isaiah's prayer was to God in his day. This is about 2,700 years ago. Oh, that you would rip open the heavens and descend. Make the mountains shudder at your presence. As when a forest catches fire, as when fire makes a a pot to boil, to shock your enemies into facing you, making the nations shake in their boots. You did terrible things we never expected. This is his way of saying, you used to do these things. You used to do these amazing things. You stepped in and you parted the Red Sea. You gave Ten Commandments. You moved in all these different ways in history. And and you've descended and made the mountains shudder at your presence. Since before time began, no one has ever imagined, no ear heard, no eye seen, a God like you who works for those who wait for him. In other words, let me translate that for you. You've had a great past, God. You've done all of these amazing deeds. We've seen you on Mount Sinai. We've seen you give the Ten Commandments. We've seen you move mountains. We've seen you shake the earth. We've seen you part the seas. But where are you today? And we believe you'll probably act in the future. But where are you in my life now? And how is faith supposed to survive in the middle of a world where everything doesn't just work the first time we pray it, right? We wish we could be like that little girl in the backyard and we kneel down and we look at heaven and maybe we just don't have the right plaintive look in our face like, you know, little kids have or whatever it is. That's not it. God makes us wait. And it's because we need to wait that he makes us wait. It's because faith is born in the midst of years. It's not born in a moment where you think you believe. It's born over time as we listen to God and what he said in the past. And then we start to wait for him and we expectantly hope that he's going to move. And eventually we experience as he delivers to us. We receive what, he's got, what he offers us. What this poem that Zacharias wrote for us tells us is that God wants to visit and he did visit. And Jesus is the product of that visitation. But he's continued to visit lives over and over again. Over the course of the last month, Tim and I have periodically, I get a phone call and it's Tim and I can't take the call. And I I look at my cell phone and I say, okay, let me listen to this voicemail. And I hear Tim and he says, you got to call me because God just did. And then he has some prayer request that's got an answer. And we can't tell all of you because, you know, some of those things are near and dear to people's hearts. But we see God break in, not just monthly, but weekly. Around here, God steps out and he does things and we don't, we don't see him coming. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this, this silence, something is birthed. And we're always enamored, always blessed to worship him in those moments. So this morning, I want to take for just a few moments some words that kind of surround the idea of faith. And I want to take them apart and talk about what it means to walk the life of faith in your day. Because Zechariah actually walked a life of faith that was a little bit iffy, right? I love the Bible because sometimes it actually legitimizes the fact that we're not perfect people, you know? When you read the stories of the people in the Old Testament, you think, if I did that, I'd be hung from the nearest tree, you know? I mean, some of those people were crazy. Zacharias was not a great man of faith. In fact, he'd lost his faith by the time we pick up his story. And this is almost the story of how he regains his faith, as God births his plan into the life of Zachariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And then they have this poem that's so amazing that we get to read. These four words we're going to focus on this morning. First, listening. 
Second, waiting. Third, expecting. And last, receiving. Okay? Watching God move and watching him step in means that we watch over a long period of time, looking at our rearview mirror and realizing that he's moved in the past, and then watching for him in today and waiting for him expectantly, and then thinking, someday I'm going to sit there and I'm going to receive the baby that God offers us. Whatever that is for you, it's going to be different for every person in this room, but God wants to move in faith. And the Bible is very clear that without faith, it's impossible to please God, without belief, without stepping in and believing that God wants to move. He won't do it today. He won't do it tomorrow. And he might not give you what you want, but he does want to do something and he wants to do it for your best. I want to read for you a passage of scripture that has to do with listening. This is from Philippians 1, 7. It sounds a little strange, but I'll explain. It says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, one of the things I notice about myself is I am not a patient person. I'm really patient if I'm in a hospital with someone. I'm really patient if I'm on the phone with somebody who needs help. But I'm very impatient when it comes to my kids. And periodically, one of them will ask me for something, and I'll say, didn't you want that yesterday? You know, and the day before that, whatever it is, I have these, like, these knee-jerk reactions that are not as positive, and they don't really look like God's alive within me. And I've, I've kind of asked myself, what is that all about? And I realize I'm just not all the person I wish I was. You ever had that feeling? where you look at yourself and you go, I thought I was better than this. I just lost it in a moment when I thought I would be able to handle this situation. I didn't. Well, here's a promise, and it's an example. There's hundreds of promises in the Scripture. God speaks in different ways, but, of course, the primary way is in the Bible. And this one says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians tells us this. It's the Apostle Paul writing. And he tells us, listen, God wants to do this stuff. When you look at yourself, it's almost a prayer request list. When you see the difference between yourself and perfection. It's a long list for me. And yet God is working to complete that list. He wants to move in me. And so one of the things this scripture asks us to believe is that we're supposed to look back and listen to what God has said in the past. And what he said is, I want to move in this person. I want to transform him. I want to change him. I want to alter his life. I want to make him into the person I've created him to be. And he's not there yet. He's not that great a guy. And yet God is still moving. And we have to listen in the past. In one of the churches I pastored, there was a sign in the basement and it said this, don't forget in the darkness what you heard in the light. Let me say it again. Don't forget in the darkness what you heard in the light. We lose our faith when we lose track of what God's doing and we start to move on in our existence going, well, yeah, God said this stuff, but my job is to walk out this life and I don't really need to think about that. No, you have to rest on those things every day, remembering, constantly being brought back to the truth of what Jesus has said to you. And this scripture says God wants to transform human beings and he's about doing it. And we don't know how he'll work and we don't know the timing in which he'll work, but he loves to do this action of changing us. What a promise, right? So we have to listen first. The second thing we have to do is wait. This is from the prophet Isaiah again. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. How many of you get tired, more tired, I'll say more tired, uh, in line at the bank than you do when you're playing a pickup game of basketball? Honestly. I mean, you ever have that feeling when you're waiting? You just, you just go, oh, my goodness, I'm so tired of this. Shelby and I, Shelby had a back problem. This is a couple of years ago. And we had to call the doctor. We had to make an appointment. It was for 11 a.m. And she got out of work, and I met her there. And, and we got there at 11.02. 11.02. That's not real late, right? And we had this kind of special appointment, and so we thought we'd be fine. 
But there was this long line of all these people, maybe 15 of them. And I got in line. Shelby sat down because her back was really hurting. And I got in line and I was sitting behind all of these people and it only slowly inched forward didn't really move. And I got to the point where at at 11.15, I was the next person in line. And this lady who I think was about 85 years old stepped in front of me, cut right in line, right directly in front of me. And and I I think she was innocent. I still wonder, you know, what was in this lady's heart? She just kind of walked there and I thought, I can't correct her. And so we went, we waited for another five minutes and she took quite a bit of time for the, for the receptionist to deal with. And, and, and then at the end of that, I got to the line and I said, okay, my wife's here and she had an 11 o'clock appointment. And the lady says, well, it's 1120. I think you missed it. And I saw red, you know? I mean, I was so mad because, I mean, if it was me, maybe I can put up with that. But somehow when it's another person that you really care for, it's even worse, right? Your offense level is higher. And I'm madder because it's Shelby. I'm angry. And so I say, listen, I want my wife to get in and see this doctor. And we go forth. And eventually she got in. I didn't have to use any of my nasty words, you know. But, but I am not a good waiter. And as I sat in that line changing from hip to hip, I'm like, oh, Now, I can work all day, you know? I can mow lawns, I can dig ditches, I can shovel. I can do those things, but I can't wait. Well, what this verse tells us, watch what it says. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted, because it's really about what you're focusing on. The young person focused on the wrong stuff is going to grow exhausted early. If they're not listening, if they're not focused on what God said, something will happen. So, But they who wait for the Lord... If they're looking back at the words that God has spoken and they're focused on those words and they're listening to what they've had to say to them and they're moving in the faith of going, okay, God has been faithful in the past and he's still working and I'm going to wait in that and I'm going to rest in it. And it's an active waiting rather than just a passive waiting. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's a whole different type of waiting, right? You know, in literal Hebrew, you know what the word Zechariah means? The guy who wrote this piece of scripture that we're reading this morning, you know what, you know what his name means? God remembers. And, and I can't help but think the irony of a man who really thought God had forgotten him and forgotten all of his people, and yet God was saying, I remember. And in the silence of all of these years and in the silence of nine months of waiting for a a, a young boy to be born, Zechariah regained his faith and realized that God truly did remember. He had to look back and realize that those promises, they were actually for today. They're for real. They weren't just things that we kind of somehow think got contextualized out of our scriptures. Maybe they're not really for today. Maybe they're things we should leave behind. We don't really have to trust in that stuff. We don't have to believe that God's going to move. No, God wants to move. He's just taking his time. And Zechariah says, oh my goodness, I've waited all these years and I gave up waiting and it's, it's at this point that my faith is going to be renewed and I'm going to have this little child. Maybe you're in that situation. The third thing is that you have to expect. Isaiah 62 says, I have posted watchmen on your walls of Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise over all the earth. Now, just think about this. We start with a promise, and there are all these promises in the scriptures, and then we wade on them, and then it tells us that we're supposed to expectantly be involved in the prayer life over them. Expect means to pray. That means that God wants to hear you bug him about the ways he hasn't answered your prayer so far. Now, 
you know, we have this kind of thought that God is like our dads. And I don't know what your dad was like, but I know what sort of dad I am, and I know my dad. And when you ask for something three times, a dad starts to lose his hair and lose his brain and lose his sanity, right? We get frustrated with kids who ask us too many questions. And yet what this scripture asks us to think is that God is not at all like that. Please bug me, he says. In fact, don't let me sleep is what this scripture says. In fact, don't let yourselves sleep. You keep me awake and you keep waking yourself up to keep bugging me because God wants to move and you're supposed to wait expectantly. You know, when we get the idea of waiting, what we think is we're just supposed to sit down in the waiting room and pick up a magazine about some other topic and we're checking out in our life. We turn on the cable and we start clicking, right? And we're done with actually actively listening. We're done actively waiting. We're done actively expecting. And yet what God is saying is, listen, expectation means prayer. Expectation means looking at me and saying, the world isn't working yet. Keep bugging me. Keep going until people look at your piece of real estate, look at your life and your family, and they go, wow, that's evidence I should praise God. Wouldn't that be something? We easily, we easily fail to expect. Let me give you an example of this. This is truly a terrible scripture. It's from Matthew chapter 23. It's Jesus speaking towards the end of his ministry. And he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. These are the people who knew the Bible, by the way, right? There's a world of people who didn't understand the scriptures in, in Jesus' time. And yet Jerusalem was the epicenter of Bible study and people who understood what God was supposed to want to do. And yet he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing to be gathered. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jesus has come over and over again to the house of God. And each time the people there have failed to recognize him, failed to receive him, failed to expect him. And why? Because they're not expectant. They're not living lives of prayer. They're living lives of religion. They're living lives of, listen, I just come to church and I punch my clock and that's what I do. The card is, is hit and I'm good, you know? And I don't actually need to engage my whole soul, my whole heart, my whole life into this thing. All I got to do is sit on the sidelines and say, you know what? I'm involved in the Jewish religion. And Jesus says, that's not enough. Because God's going to come and God's going to surprise you with the way he works. And he might not work primarily in the church. He might work in your neighbor's house. I think I've told you this story maybe, but, but there was a, when Shelby and I bought our first house, there was this guy who lived across the street and I had an every Thursday morning prayer breakfast. And uh, we prayed for this guy across the street. And, you know, he was just, we prayed for our neighborhood, so we prayed for him. And these guys would come and we'd eat eggs and toast and bacon and whatever, and then they'd go home. And one day the guy across the street said, hey, what are all those guys filing into your house at 6 in the morning? That is really early to be throwing a party in this neighborhood. And I said, you know, well, I don't want to, I mean, I, I'm kind of, you know, if, iffy about admitting this, but it's a prayer group. I said, oh, really? You guys pray? Yeah. He says, well, that's interesting because my prayer room has a window that faces your house. And every morning I watch those guys go in and I've been praying for that. You remember that one with the red head? What's going on? He was limping the other day. And he actually knew what was going on with the people, guys going to my prayer room. He's praying for them. He didn't go to my church. He didn't even go to the denomination that my church was from. He didn't go to anything like the church I came from. But God was active in his life. And I realized one of the things God was trying to get me to do is realize that I needed to expect him to move in ways in my neighborhood that maybe not weren't through me or through my church. He was moving through other people. And yet my expectations shut the door to that. I built a wall between me and him before it was ever even something that I could have looked across and seen what was going on. 
This man had a heart for Jesus, and I never knew it. And what happens is we miss Jesus Christ because he's active in ways that we don't expect, and we're not expecting because we're not praying, and we're not seeking, and we're not looking back and waiting on that truth that God has said in our past. We need to move forward. Luke 1, 74 and 75, right from this poem, has this line. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You know, when Jesus shows up in your life and he visits, when God starts to do something new, what's tough is that we have to receive it. I was watching football the other day, and this wide receiver ran down the field, and he didn't out-pattern. And he got kind of tangled up with a cornerback. If you can picture this, I'm, I, I like football. You might not, and then this might not work for you as well. But he does this out-pattern, and the quarterback just throws the ball on a rope, and it hits the wide receiver in the helmet. Boink. And it bounces off and goes like 10 yards down the field. It was so hilarious to watch that ball do You know, I mean, we're used to these guys catching everything thrown their way, right? But this guy kind of got distracted by the adversity he was in, and the ball got through his hands, hit him in the face, and then bounced all the way down the field. And even the commentators were laughing, right? One of the things we do is we, we say, God, we want to hear from you. We want you to work. We want to receive what you have for us. But then we're not paying attention, and the past comes, and God wants to birth this thing in our lives, and it bounces off us, and it never hits. And we don't realize that we're sitting in the ultimate moment where we should be worshiping and praising God, but anything else is happening. What Luke 1 tells us is this. Jesus visited and redeemed his people and raised up this horn of salvation, this, this king. Jesus is this king to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. You know, we live in a day of conspiracy theories, and I heard one the other day was that there's this gigantic weather-creating machine in Washington State. This is not true, okay? Don't, don't even buy it, not even for a second. I'm not trying to tell you it is. But this conspiracy theory is that there's a weather-creating machine in Washington and that the, United, the President of the United States, along with a bunch of other leaders, have used this thing to create the tsunami on the East Coast. What a terrible thought, right? But it's this thought that we're small people. Conspiracy theorists are, are built out of the idea that we're small and there are people out there who have big control. And the really big problems in our lives come from people out there who are going back and forth and fighting about things and consp- building these conspiracies and developing plans and working them out. But you know what? That's not how real evil works. Usually the darkness that we fear most and should fear most comes not from outside but from within. It's not the gigantic power brokers of our planet. It's actually the opposite. It's the things that are wrong within us. And so what it means to receive is that Jesus is going to set us free from the enemy. And it's not the enemy of foreign oppression. It's not some king on the other side of the world. It's not some military. It's the enemy that lives inside each one of us. We have this problem called sin. Theologians call it depravity. I remember looking at my little baby, you know, holding my firstborn, Sophie. She was such a cute kid, you know. And I held her in my arms, and I thought, she's almost perfect. And about 18 months old, I remember she, she learned the word no. She was sitting in her high chair, and we sliced up these carrots. They're real soft carrots, and she's sitting with a whole line of carrots. And she picked one up, and she tossed it over the side of her tray. And I said, no, no Sophie. She looked at me directly, picked up another one, dropped it over the side of her tray. And I said, no, a little louder. And then she picked up another one, looked me directly in the eyes. And I realized she didn't get skipped in that whole sin gene. It's still there. 
She, she's got the same thing wrong with her that had wrong with everybody else. And it doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States. It doesn't matter if you are involved in a conspiracy. The problem with all of these things is that we have this little thing called sin wrong. And what this poem tells us is, listen, he has visited and redeemed his people to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. And it's not the enemies outside that we're mostly to be afraid of. The enemy that Jesus came to set us free from was the enemy within. The stuff in your life and in mine that says, I want to do the wrong thing, not the right thing. The stuff that says, I'd rather be a addicted to this, that, or the other thing than deal with the grace that God wants to give me. He wants to set me free. Goes on and says, and to enable us to serve him without fear. You know, one of the moments I can remember really being afraid, I was playing basketball at a gym in Chicago, and all of the New York Knicks coaches walked in and watched me playing this one-on-one game. I'm not that good at basketball. They were not impressed. Pat Riley, if you remember Pat Riley as the coach of the Knicks, walks in, and he's sitting on this seat, and I gave up the one-on-one game almost immediately. We're done. We're walking out. And so I go to go exit the gym, and if you remember, the Knicks in that era had a power forward by the name of Anthony Mason. He's the largest human being I've ever seen, okay? And he had three bullets still lodged in his shoulder from a gang fight. He was truly one of those guys you had to be kind of afraid of. I opened the door to the gym, and on the other side, it was like, you know, one of those Bob Barker moments where you open the door and you wonder what's... And it's, there it is, Anthony Mason. And you know what Anthony Mason did? He's a gigantic guy. We're talking six foot seven, about 300 pounds. He walks through and he pushes me aside with this much of his hand, just this little bit right here. And you know what? I moved. I mean, I just, I mean, it just moved me. There was nothing I could say or do. It was so offensive, so rude. I didn't say a word, right? You know who there is to be the, who the person is we're supposed to be the most afraid of? When you get close to God and you find out how unrighteous you are, how unworthy you are, how broken you are, how, just like my daughter at 18 months, our natural word is no. God says, do this. And we say, no. No, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do the other thing. Not what you tell me. We don't like people telling us what to do. And it doesn't stop when it comes to God. And so when we get close to him, we get very, very afraid. All across the scriptures, when God gets close to somebody, he has to say, do not be afraid. Why? Because they're very afraid. And why are they afraid? Because they have this brokenness within them and they feel his goodness. What this verse tells us is very, very simple. To rescue us from the hand of our enemy, that's the sin, and to enable us to serve him without fear. You don't have to be afraid of God. God is fearsome. He's the most fearsome person there has ever been in the history of the world. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the judge. But yet we do not have to be afraid. Why? Because Jesus came. Because we have this whole new birth. And into the silence, God spoke the word. And into the hopeless life that we live, he birthed hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, we don't have to be afraid of God. He wants to be one who we speak with, one we commune with, one who has control and leadership in our lives today. He goes on to say these two words, in in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Holiness means to be set apart. Holiness means to be something that's pure and used for only a specific purpose. And you are gifted to be someone who God uses for specific purposes. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says there are good works created in advance for every person to do. That means nobody else can do the job you do. You actually have an irreplaceable call on your life. God wants you to do things that no one else on this planet can do. You are holy. And it only works if you've accepted Jesus' penalty and the gift that he's offered us from this enemy that's inside of us and that we've walked in this place where we don't have to be afraid of judgment anymore. We don't have to be afraid of God anymore. In fact, we've run to God, not away from him. And in the middle of all that, we are called holy. And then there's this final stage. It says righteousness. God offers us his 
righteousness through his son. What a gift. That's the goodness of God, his perfection, brought into the life of human beings who easily walk past it. But all of that life goes missing in our lives when we don't remember and we don't walk in it, when we don't listen to what God has said in our past, expecting and waiting for him to move and thinking that we need to be ready at a moment's notice for us to receive. We need to be able to receive what God offers us. Some of us have the wrong idea. We want God to move in our finances or we want God to move in our relationships. We want God to move out here. But, you know, God mostly seems to want to move in here and it affects out here. And sometimes he does miraculous out there as well. But the primary place where God wants to work is in here. I've said it before and I'll say it again, that the greatest miracle I ever think of, you know, I look across and I've seen people get healed from really serious sicknesses. I've watched God reach into somebody's life. It didn't feel like anything happened. We prayed, but two days later, they're whole and they're ready. And we had, we had a lady a few years ago have a brain tumor, and that thing got healed through prayer. Something happened here in a prayer meeting, and God moved. And she's still doing well. The doctors gave her less than a year to live. You know those stories. I've heard them too. But all of those stories pale in comparison to the fact that we are forgiven. The ultimate The ultimate miracle is when God reaches into somebody's life and we say, we want to hold on to our sin. We want to hold on to our unrighteousness. We don't want to be holy. We want to be people who have something to fear when we see God. And in the middle of that, God births forgiveness and righteousness and holiness and all of those things. And when that happens, it's a better miracle, a greater miracle than any of those physical things we want to look for. We love it when God moves out here, but you know, God wants to move inside here. And that's the primary place where prayer and reception needs to happen. So while you're praying and receiving, while you're looking for God to move, while you're expectantly waiting, realize that you're not supposed to think, look, primarily out here, the most important thing God ever wants to do is change who you are. He wants to bless you to be the person he created you to be. Like that little girl in the backyard, you can just kind of picture her crying out to heaven, oh God, give me a cat. Our cry needs to be, oh God, give us new versions of ourselves. Oh God, please transform us. Oh, God, you who began a good work in us, be faithful to complete it, Lord God. And we want to wait and we want to expect and we want to hear those promises because you're going to come and someday there's going to be some blinding light in my life. Nobody else will see it. It'll just be me. But something will happen and I will receive this grace and I'll see you move, God. This Advent season, I want to ask you, are you thinking about that sort of grace? What is Advent about? What is Christmas about for you? Is it about families getting together? Is it about shopping? Is it about getting and giving presents? Is it about all of those things? Or is it about the fact that the the primary reason for this season is God sending the ultimate grace to earth to offer us forgiveness, to offer us holiness and righteousness, to offer us the possibility that we don't any longer need to fear our God. He wants to be in a relationship with you. And even if you've had one of those relationships for a long time, it's easy to forget to listen. It's easy to forget to wait and expect that he wants to move again and that he wants to move during this season of your life. What's your primary expectation about this life? When I was at Vanguard and every company I've worked for, they've had a a mission statement or a purpose statement. I remember the statement had to do with these investors and we were supposed to take care of investors and do all this stuff. And I got this menial starting out job, you know, at Vanguard. I worked for this little, this little department, and we didn't do anything all that remarkable. And yet we were told day in and day out, we need to care for investors. And you could show up without sleeping the night before and do this job, you know. And we didn't think we were any great mission. We didn't have any great purpose. We didn't have any great call. And yet what this scripture tells us is that we all have a great call beyond the moment. God wants to move in our lives We have a purpose that we don't easily see. What does God want to do during this season of your life? 
What is your mission? What are you oriented toward? What are you focused on during Advent? Join me in prayer.